All right, take your Bibles this morning and turn once more to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 32 through 39 this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Let's read. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that When you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This morning, I want us to look at this passage and recognize that for us, suffering is coming and ask the question, are you ready? Suffering is coming. Are you ready? For a long time now, believers have seen that our culture is headed further and further away from the influence that Christianity once had. And with that drift, there has been an increasing discussion about the reality of suffering in, in our context. For, for decades now, popular Christianity has talked about the coming persecution. I, I grew up in church my entire life, and, and the idea of persecution was something that was talked about a lot. It, it was a, a regular discussion, and, and always with a sense of it, it's kind of getting closer to the time when we may begin to experience suffering and persecution. Now, one of the things that did, which was a little bit problematic, uh, is sometimes that that can create uh, what we might call sort of a persecution complex. Meaning that Christians who expect to be persecuted and therefore look for persecution in their experience, not surprisingly, then find persecution all, all over. Everyone's persecuting them. Now, Christians are, are not wrong. They were not wrong and are not wrong now to, to discuss suffering for the cause of Christ. That's not something we shouldn't have done. The Bible speaks much about persecution. When we preach the Bible and we teach what Jesus taught, uh, we're going to have that discussion. And, and, and not only that, but the rapidly secularizing culture that we're living in, it, it is certain to produce suffering in the life of Christians. What we need to be wary of, though, is being too quick to assume persecution in places, in places where the reality may just be that, that we're just dealing with some of the struggles that every human being struggles with. Sometimes people just don't like you just because they don't like you, not because you are a Christian. So we've got to be careful not to assume that every small slight that comes into our lives is because we're, we're Christians. We've got to be careful that we don't misidentify the source of our suffering also. 
you, you know, uh, you can suffer for other things other than Christ, and sometimes we do that. You can suffer because of your personality or because of your politics, and that's your decision. It's, it's your decision to live how, how you live in terms of those things, but that's not the same as suffering for the cause of Christ. In fact, the, the Apostle Peter warns us that when we suffer, we need to make sure that the, the reason that we're suffering is for Christ and, and not for our sin. Sometimes we can even suffer in this life because of our sinful choices. So he warns us in 1 Peter, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, evildoer or as a meddler. He just throws that one in there. You've got murderers and evildoers and thieves and meddlers. And, and sometimes we can suffer because we're meddling, and that's not the same as suffering for Christ. And we need, to, we need to not assume that that's the case. So we ought to avoid a persecution complex, because really, even if we do suffer, the reality is we should not grow bitter and angry about our suffering. First of all, the Bible calls us to endure suffering with joy. James tells us, count it all joy when you enter into various trials. And you've got this mentality that you're looking for suffering and persecution all the time. Uh, it's just going to grow a bitter spirit within you. And, and you're always feeling slighted. And you're always angry toward the people who you feel are sliding you. No, no, we're to suffer with joy. Not only that, we're supposed to love our enemies. We're to bless those who persecute you. Right? That's what Jesus taught us. And so if, if we've got a persecution complex, that's going to engender hatred within our heart and not love. So we, we, can't, we can't give over to that kind of mindset. And thirdly, we can't give over to that mindset because uh, it really turns our mission field into our enemy. The ones who are persecuting you, they're, they're the mission field. The goal is not to defeat them or to destroy them. The goal is to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ, to see them converted and saved. That's, that's our goal. In fact, you think Jesus is our, our model. Re- remember His enemies, they, they crucified Him. And what does He pray on the cross? Father, forgive them. As He's in the act of suffering this persecution unjustly, completely unjustly, He prays for their forgiveness. And then Peter, when he stands on the day of Pentecost and preaches the message of the gospel, he says to to the very people who were there uh, and and consenting to the crucifixion of Christ, he says, you have taken and and by wicked hands have have killed the Messiah. And many of them turn and repent. They they say, Peter, what, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. That ought to be our goal. Our goal is not to defeat our enemies. Our goal is not to, to come at them with force and destroy them. Our goal should be to see God bring them to a place of conversion. So we've got to avoid that. We, we remember as well the Apostle Paul was a great persecutor of the church before the Lord saved him and, and made him an apostle. And so we need to be thinking in those terms. We've got to avoid that persecution complex we have yet to see really in, in our country sustained, serious, significant suffering. But what we do need to recognize, even as we try to avoid that persecution complex, what, what we must uh, recognize, I believe, is that there is a gathering storm in our culture that is certain to make suffering of various degrees a normative experience 
for most Christians in our culture. I think that time is coming. I think that we can see that the tide has turned. Uh, there were efforts in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s from the religious right to, to try to, you know, win Christianity or win America back, uh, bring it back to the Bible, bring it back to God and, and, and influence it once more for the cause of Christ. And, and I think we've seen that largely those efforts were somewhat misguided and, and have fallen by the wayside. We can see now with every new Supreme Court decision affirming gay, the gay rights agenda, reinforcing previous decisions on abortion, that I think there's little hope that America is going to suddenly shift back and embrace standards of righteousness. We can pray to that end, we can work to that end, and God can do great things, and we would hope for God to do that. But, but barring some miraculous intervention by God, we can see the direction that our country is headed. Christianity has already all but lost its preferred status in our nation, and it did have a preferred status. We, we just need to, to recognize that. That has, uh, uh, has all but slipped away, and now religious freedom is what is on the line. Religious freedom itself is being, beginning to be questioned and, and undermined. And I, I would argue that that is perhaps the single greatest issue that we need to be concerned about. If we have any ability in terms of uh, politically, uh, what we need to really be concerned about is trying to preserve our ability to faithfully live out our commit, faith commitments in the public arena. And I add that in the public arena because that's the, that's the issue. Uh, very, uh, it's very unlikely that they're going to say, oh, you know, you can't worship anymore. Or you can't hold private beliefs. The, the issue is what can you bring into the public sphere? What can you bring, bring into? What kind of values can you bring into politics? Or what kind of values can you bring into the workplace or, or into the school system? The, those are already being shoved out. Yeah, you can believe in Jesus and nobody's going to stop you from personally believing in Jesus. Or nobody's probably going to even try to stop you from, from going to church. Uh, but they will try to stop you from living out your faith in the public arena. And we can see that there, there have been... Examples of that, bakers and photographers who have already begun meeting that, they, their religious convictions uh, ha, have been uh, pushed back against, um, and, and there's been various, I, I'm not going to go down that avenue, but, but there, there are ways in which that's being pushed against. We ought to use the political process to prevent erosion of our religious liberties if you're like me, you want to see a place for your children who will be able to practice their faith without suffering great consequences. And we ought to be concerned about that. Yet this morning, I think what we need to recognize that is that avoidance of persecution is not our highest priority. It isn't the aim of the Christian life. We, we would be wise to try to preserve religious liberty as it has been experienced in our nation over the last two centuries and yet we must have a biblical realism. And what I mean by that is to say that we should come to expect that, that we, will always, we will not always experience such freedom. Though we lobby and we legislate, the reality of persecution seems to be on the horizon. And in fact, from a New Testament perspective, we shouldn't be surprised about that. The, the surprising thing is that we've enjoyed the freedom that we've had for so long. Peter tells us once again, don't be surprised 
by the fiery trial as if some strange thing were coming upon you. That's the normative experience for the Christian life for the last 2,000 years. We've lived in an unprecedented time of peace and, and freedom. I think in a relatively short time, Christians will begin to face real suffering for Christ. Suffering is coming, and the question is, are you ready? Well, this passage, that's a rather long introduction this morning, but this this passage helps prepare us to suffer by helping us understand more clearly, I think, the nature of the persecution and then calling us to faithful endurance in light of our soon coming Savior. So there's two things this morning, and I'll try to move quickly through them. First of all, the nature of suffering, and we're just going to look at three principles of suffering from this text. So the nature of suffering has got three principles, and then we're going to see the call to endurance. So let's jump in this morning. First of all, we notice the first principle is this, is that suffering is not likely to be a single severe event that we can choose to endure for a split second. More likely, it will be a sustained circumstance that will require a steadfast stand for Christ throughout your life. You see, I think a lot of us have maybe a misconception about what suffering is or what persecution will look like. I I think a lot of times, maybe we've watched too many movies uh, and we've heard stories about, you know, Christians in the Roman Empire being thrown to the lions or people being beheaded or being shot for their faith in in Christ. And those things are real. Those things have happened throughout church history. I I would encourage you to read and study church history. Uh, but, But those things are not usually the sustained experience. Rather, what typically has been the case uh, is just a constant pressure uh, on Christians, a, a, a constant struggle with, with the world. And I think that's what we see going on here with the Hebrews, uh, the, 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 those who received this letter originally. Notice, first of all, in verse 32, that he calls them to remembrance of the former days. He says, remember the former days. This, this indicates, I think, that, that some time has passed, right? He's writing to them now, and he's encouraging them to persevere. And he's saying, remember back, and I think he's especially talking in verse 32, he says, when you were enlightened. He's talking about the time of their conversion. And, and clearly what he's uh, indicating is that when these people announced and professed their faith in Jesus Christ, that it seems like immediately they went into a time of pretty severe persecution and he caused them to remember the former days when you endured he says a hard struggle with suffering the the way that he kind of puts that it almost sounds like hey that's that's in the past remember that remember when that real bad experience happened for a time And, and i think there was a a severity that only occurred for a time but notice in verse 36 that he tells them that they still have a need for endurance and we know the whole letter of the, to, to the Hebrews is encouraging them to persevere. Don't give up. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't turn away from Christ. Uh, I, I think the whole tenor of the letter is understanding, hey, you all are experiencing some pressure and, and it looks really tempting to turn away from Christ and to give up your faith in Jesus Christ, but you need to persevere. And I think what we see then is that this is an ongoing reality. Maybe it wasn't as severe as it once was when they first professed their faith in Christ, but it's an ongoing struggle for them. 
Though the severest or hottest time of suffering had occurred near the beginning of their conversion to Christ, yet the, they continued to be in the midst of challenging circumstance. And what we need to understand is that this is often the way that suffering occurs. There are seasons of, of intense persecution throughout church history, but then those seasons are, are, are come to an end and they're, they're followed by less times of less dramatic but still very serious and very real suffering. Oftentimes, you know, persecution is not a matter of being burned at the stake or stoned or thrown in with the lions. Martyrdom is not the most common form of suffering. That kind of persecution is rarely sustained over long periods of time. More often, suffering is less dramatic. It's a less dramatic, sustained pressure that is applied for long periods of time. And we could just think of, of various examples of what I'm talking about. And our text is, is one example. Obviously, they, they were continuing uh, under this tension, under this pressure. But we see that in, in Paul's life as, as well. Paul was hounded and harassed everywhere he went and, and, and preached as he went on his missionary journeys. Uh, he wasn't arrested every time. Uh, his life wasn't in danger every time he went out. But every time he went out, there was this, this consistent opposition against him. Later, he was dragged around. He was in prison for two years and dragged around, dragged around and, and, and made to give a defense of himself before various leaders in the Roman Empire. The apostles, the other apostles, were the, were the same way. There was, they were constantly opposed when they preached the gospel. Even today, when we think about persecution in our day and time, you, you think about places like China. That we know of. They're not doing mass execution of Christians in in China. But there is just this opposition that is constant. It's difficult to be a Christian and to live out your faith in China. You're not able to meet as we meet publicly and freely. Uh, More often you have to meet, they call it the underground church, where, where you have to do this secretly and quietly. And there's always this sense that somebody could come in and we'll be arrested here. Just last year there was a pastor that was arrested and detained for, for some time. There were cameras in the church. Uh, that, that they, the Communist Party said, we've got to keep an eye on what's going on in here. And they, they insisted they have cameras in the church. It's just that kind of constant pressure. We're, we're watching you. It's going to be difficult for you. Missionaries all around the world are subject to that same kind of harassment. We've talked about Stephen Guest, who has been here before, was a missionary in China. Uh, and he visited with us, and we've prayed for him many times. Uh, but really throughout his ministry in India. Did I say China? Maybe I said China, but he's in India, or he was in India. Uh, But throughout his time there, the whole time, it's just a matter of, are you going to be able to renew your visa? Well, we're not sure. Come back in in two weeks, okay? You come back, and and, and going to the office to get your visa renewed is like an all-day thing in, in India. Come back, you sit there all day again. Oh, you can't, we can't give it, we can't approve it. Go back. And then when he would come home, uh, to visit, I know that's really where we met him originally. We were members of a church in Lagrange, uh, and he was there. And the reason he was there and not in India is because he was waiting to get his visa approved. And the reason he was having so much problem is because they don't like Christians. There's just a, a constant opposition. There's a constant pressure against him. 
there was a missionary when I was growing up in our home church that we supported, and um, it, it was a similar thing. This man was Indian. He was from the country India, uh, but, but he was falsely accused of, of having done something, uh, and he was arrested for a time and detained, uh, and, and, and later on, uh, they released him, but then there was always this trial. I mean, my entire life growing up, we, we would pray for Sam Varghese was his name, pray for missionary Sam Varghese and pray for his upcoming trial. And it was the same kind of thing. They would go to trial uh, and they would all show up and the witnesses who were supposed to be there for the people accusing him of this wouldn't show up. So they would just postpone it, right? They don't have a right to a speedy trial. So for years, this is just constantly hanging over his head, this trial. In other places, you just simply live with the disapproval of society. You're misunderstood and marginalized. There's, there's disp- suspicion and dislike of you. People won't hire you. They, they, they want to keep a distance from you. They view you with suspicion, mistrust, and, and even hatred. And Christian, th- these are the kinds of things that will be coming soon. And we need to prepare for that. Sometimes I think it would just be easier, right? In one way, it would just be easier to make that split decision, that split second decision, and profess your faith in Christ and die as a martyr and it all be over with. In some ways, it's much more difficult to just live in this tension in which I'm not liked, in which I'm not accepted, in which you are marginalized in society, in which there's just this constant pressure against you. But that's the, that's the nature of most kinds of suffering throughout church history. And I think we could see things coming like co- children who, who won't be able to get into colleges or universities unless they affirm certain views of sexuality. People won't be able uh, to, to be hired. Property could be confiscated. Your life could be made difficult. Uh, your children and having your children could could be threatened if you won't indoctrinate them if you won't teach them certain things perhaps the state will feel the need to step in and 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 take your children in order to teach them what they feel they need to be taught those are the kinds of things the the challenge will not be that you have to make that split second decision to profess your faith in christ right before you're executed the challenge will be that you have to endure slander and misrepresentation and hatred, and scorn, and marginalization, and poverty, and even the rejection of your friends and your family for the duration of your life. And that's what we need to be prepared for. Principle number two is this. Suffering will not come, most likely, with clarity, but with confusion. Suffering will not come with clarity, but with confusion. You'll have to suffer while being maligned. You won't be vindicated in the eyes of the world, including your neighbors, the public, whether you're talking about social media or the news media, co-workers, friends, and, and even family. And you must be willing, if you're going to suffer for the cause of Christ, you must be willing to suffer under false pretenses. So look at verse 32. Again, we see this. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So he talks here about being publicly exposed 
to reproach. There's a couple things that we notice there. First of all, it's just the idea of reproach. What does it mean to be reproached? It means to be disgraced, to, to be insulted. And as it's used in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, it, it usually refers to a disgrace uh, or insult which is not fair. It's, it's not well-founded. One dictionary defines the word this way. It means to speak disparagingly of a person in a manner which is not justified. And that's what was happening to the Hebrews. They were being reproached. They were being insulted. Things were being said about them uh, that were not flattering, that made them look bad, and they weren't even true. And not only were they being reproached, but they were being publicly reproached, publicly exposed. That, That word publicly exposed, if I can say it, uh, is connected to the word where we get our word for theater. It's to be put on like a show, to be, uh, to, to have public shame, to make a show of them. And so that's what's happening here is, is they're being publicly reproached. Things are being said about them in public so for all, for everyone to hear, for everyone to see, for everyone to know. And those things are insulting and they're not finally true that's what's what's going on that's the way that suffering most often occurs do do you understand that again i think we have a misconception we're going to die in this brave moment where everybody knows the reason that you're dying or the reason that you're being thrown in jail or the reason that you're being fined is because you are professing faith in jesus christ and everybody's going to know that and you're going to feel good that that they know that and you're willing to take your stand no the reality is when we suffer persecution, it, it, we're going to be maligned. It, it's not going to be directly because you profess faith in Christ. It's going to be for some other reason, because you're hateful and a bigot. And everyone knows that these bigots need to be shut down, and they, they're too hateful, and we need to get rid of them. We need to quiet them. We don't need to allow them in public spaces. That, that's the kind of thing that we need to be prepared for. It's not going to be because everyone knows you professed faith in Christ. That's not what is going to happen. That's, that's not the case with any persecution that you look at, whether you're looking at the New Testament or whether you're looking throughout church history, it, it almost never is the case that it's just an open and shut case of they profess faith in Christ and therefore they're persecuted. When you look at, at Paul, um, several different times when he's beaten or arrested in the New Testament, um, one, one time in Philippi when he's arrested for casting out a demon out of a girl who was being exploited for money, uh, he cast out that demon and, and the people made, it made the people mad because they were losing their money. And, and so this is what they said. And, and when they had brought them, talking about Paul and, and his companions, when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Is that true? Not at all. That's not what was happening there. They were angry because Paul had cast out this demon. But now they, they're lying about him. They're, they're presenting some other case. The same thing is true uh, about Paul in Jerusalem when he was persecuted in Jerusalem. What did they say? They said this man is teaching everyone to to reject the law of God. Again, they were maligning him. In in the early church, as we go into church history, we see the same thing is true. I I saw an article that was helpful this week. Christianity.com had ten lies that were spoken of about the, the, the early church. And they included things like this. 
that the early church practiced cannibalism because they took the Lord's Supper and said that this was the body and blood of Christ. And so people were saying, hey, they're, they're cannibals. They eat flesh. There was a disruption of, of businesses because when they went in and preached the gospel, people stopped buying idols and stopped buying meat that had been sacrificed to idols. But they said it was a, uh, an issue of disrupting business. They were even accused of being atheists, believe it or not, because they rejected all of the gods of, uh, of Greek mythology. They rejected those, and so because they would not worship all of these gods, they were, they were called atheists. They were not patriotic because they wouldn't worship Caesar and, and so on. Throughout church history, Christians, true Christians, have not suffered as Christians, but they, were, they suffered as heretics. Whether you're talking about Win, William Tyndall or later the, the Anabaptists who suffered, it was never, hey, they're professing faith in Christ. No, no, no. These people are heretics. They're, they're teaching things that are not true. So, so listen, when, when it comes to suffering, we, we need to face uh, that, that we're going to experience similar things. It's not going to be clear. There won't be clarity. We'll have to know that what we're doing is right and we'll have to be personally convinced of it, but we're going to have to suffer while being maligned. We're going to have to suffer even though people think the reason they're suffering, they deserve it because they believe this or they say that or they think this, even though those things are not true. And sometimes the reproach will come even from those who are closest to us, and that's what will be difficult for us. When your own family will not understand you, they don't understand what you believe, and they, they malign you and think that you believe or that you practice something weird. But isn't that what Jesus said? Matthew chapter 10, verse 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't think that I've come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Are you ready to suffer? If you are, you have to be ready to be maligned and, and for people not to understand you and for even your own family not to understand what you're believing, what you're teaching, what you're practicing. We've got to be ready for that moment. Here's principle number three. Principle number three is that suffering is not individualistic. Suffering is not individualistic. We will be called to suffer alongside others through our association with them. Again, look at verses 33, especially 33b and then 34. Uh, sometimes he says being publicly ex exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison. That word partners there uh, means is really just the word for fellowship, koinonia. Uh, fellowship means to share something in common. You're, you, you come together, you're a partner, you're a fellow partaker. Of course, we as Christians, our fellowship is rooted in the fact that we're both united to Christ. We're all united to Christ, and Christ draws us into this shared fellowship with one another. But, but these suffering, or these Christians here, were united not only in their profession of faith in Christ, but they were united, they fellowshiped with each other in their 
suffering. It appears here, obviously, that some of them had been imprisoned. And, and so you can just imagine that. The tendency might be when someone's imprisoned, imprisoned and, and, and they're kind of suffering more severely, uh, the, the tendency might be for you to want to distance yourself. I, I kind of want to stay away from them. Uh, the temptation for the rest of the church could, could even be to blame those Christians, right? And that happens sometimes. You know, maybe if those Christians were a little more winsome, Maybe if they weren't so rigid about the way that they practice their faith. Uh, maybe if they didn't publicly evangelize. You know, I don't, I don't go out in public and talk about Jesus and I haven't suffered the way that they have. If they would just do that, then they wouldn't suffer. Maybe, maybe if they just took a softer tone. Maybe if they were a little more cautious, then they wouldn't find themselves in this kind of trouble. You know, since all of this could have just been avoided if they, if they act more wisely... I'm just going to keep my distance from them. I don't want to be identified with them and, and their suffering. You see, that's, that's the temptation. That's not what the Hebrews did. Instead, they willingly became partners with those who were in prison. Rather than avoid association or distance themselves, they willingly owned the prisoners as brothers and sisters. And they did this, verse 34 says, because of sympathy or compassion look again at verse 34 for you had compassion on those who were in prison you had compassion this word is the word for sympathy it means to feel with someone uh, and and that's just exactly what they did the the idea is that we enter into emotionally the experience of another person even though we're not experiencing that and paul talks about that in the book of romans right weep with those who weep rejoice with those who rejoice the opposite would be a person who just hardens his heart against someone. They're going through that and it's like, well, that's their fault. They shouldn't have acted in that way. But that's not what they did. They didn't hard, harden their heart. Self-preservation would have led them to steal their hearts at any thought of sympathy and to look out for their own safety and their own protection. But they had sympathy. They had compassion. Paul understood this experience all too well. When Paul was finally in prison and he was looking like he was going to be put to death, in 2 Timothy he wrote to, to Timothy and he says this in verse one or chapter 1, verse 15. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Paul's in prison. He's going to be put to death. I'm not going to visit him. I, I'm, I'm staying away from him. I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with Paul because I don't want to be suffering the way that Paul is suffering he says among those who turned away are phygelus and hermogenes may the lord grant mercy to the house of onesiphorus for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains but when he arrived in rome he searched for me earnestly and found me sounds like onesiphorus was doing the very thing that these hebrews were doing they were not ashamed to be identified. Of course, in those days when you were in prison, they didn't provide meals for you. So you were dependent on people coming and bringing you food and meeting your needs while you were in prison. And that's what the Hebrews did for their brothers and sisters who had been in prison, even though that came with some scorn. That Oh, you're with those people? Oh, you're here to visit them? Those awful Christians? It came with some reproach, but they didn't allow that to keep them from ministering to their brothers and sisters. We need to prepare 
ourselves that we might not be those who turn away, but rather those who share in the sufferings of our brothers and sisters. Again, Paul says in first or second Timothy one six, for God gave us uh, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Listen, God's not given us a spirit of fear. We need to, we need to walk in the spirit right now and, and allow the Lord to bring courage and strength and power into our minds and hearts so that when that time comes, when those trials and when that suffering comes, we're willing to own our brothers and sisters. That, that we're not cowards. Remember the apostle Peter? He, he turned away from Christ, didn't he? All the apostles fled when, when Jesus, uh, was crucified. But Peter denied Christ three times and that's listen that's what we need to remember this morning when when we're suffering and sharing in suffering with others the reality is that ultimately we're sharing in suffering with christ it's his suffering and and we're not so much just suffering with other believers in jesus christ but we're ultimately sharing in the suffering of jesus christ that's what we see in romans eight seventeen. the apostle paul teaches uh, he says, and if children, if we're children of God, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. You see, if you're called to suffer, ultimately you are going to be suffering with Christ. And in 1 Peter, the same idea is given. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as as you share in Christ's suffering. See, when we fellowship, the, the true fellowship that we're having is with Christ and His suffering. It's His suffering. That's the reason that, that we will suffer. Our suffering is not ultimately for, Christ, for others, but for Christ. And when we turn away from those who suffer for Christ, we turn away from Christ. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24? When he's talking about the judgment day, he says, I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they say to him, Lord, when did we see you naked and not clothe you or or, or hungry and not feed you or in prison and not visit you? When did when did we see that happen? And Jesus says in that you did not do it to the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it unto me. So our suffering is ultimately with Christ, but when we reject our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering, it's as if we're doing it to Christ, as if we're re- rejecting Christ. Well, this morning as we close, I just want us to see the goal in suffering. What, what is the goal? What, why do we need to prepare? What do we need to be ready for? Well, the goal is that we would endure in suffering. The, the goal is that we would persevere. You see, because the temptation is going to be, you know, just go along. Just just give up on this issue. Look, you can be a Christian and you can profess all of these things. You can go to church. Just give up on this one area. If if you will just give in on this issue, then, then everything will be okay. And that's going to be the temptation. But we need to stand strong. We need to persevere. We need to endure. And that's what we're called to in these verses. He says in verse number 37 verse 37 for yet a little while and the coming will coming one will come and will not delay 
Listen, the reason we want to endure is because Jesus is going to return. That we believe that. We have faith in that. That's not just a myth or a fairy tale. That's the only thing that would make, make sense of suffering, right? If you were being pressured to relent on something and your whole life was being turned upside down, your, your family was turning away from you, you, you were being marginalized, the, the, the sane person, if, the, if that was the only consideration, would just give in to get along, right? Just go along with what everyone wants. But the reality is we can't do that because Jesus is going to return and He's our judge. We've got to stand before Him. And the reality is as well is when Jesus returns, He's bringing a reward with Him for those who endure suffering. Look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, if you're going to endure suffering you're going to have to remember that christ is returning that he's coming again and that he's bringing his reward with him for those who will endure and it's only people who have faith in that it's only people who truly believe that to be the ultimate reality in the universe it's only people who truly believe that that will endure suffering everyone else will turn away everyone else will give up they would do the same thing but for those of us who truly believe in Christ, who truly believe that when Jesus comes, we have a better possession. We have an abiding possession. You see, the things that you're trying to hold on in this world, they're going to slip away. But when Jesus returns, He's bringing a better possession for us. And endurance means that you will receive what is promised. Look at verse number 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, that's the condition uh, of receiving what Christ is bringing. It, it, it's that you endure in, in the faith. It's that you continue to profess Christ. That, that you do not give up. And so we're called to endurance. We're called to live by faith in these truths. Look at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. You see, we've got to live a life of faith. That's what we're called to. We don't see these things yet. We don't see Christ yet. We don't see heaven yet. We don't see eternity yet. And yet we walk by faith. And faith is the only thing that will lead a person to endure through that kind of suffering. That kind of sustained pressure to relent and to give up will only come for those who have faith in Christ. But for those who do have faith, there is a great reward. Let me just close by, by reading to you Romans eight eighteen. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. There is great glory that is coming for those who endure suffering. Are you ready? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for Christ, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the better possession that we have. Uh, we, we thank you for the abiding possession that we have, the, the great reward that will be given to us, to those who profess faith in Christ and, and who continue to, to walk in faithfulness to Christ throughout their life. Lord, we, we are so thankful for that. It's, it's all by grace. God, we pray that you would prepare us, that you would help us, Make us ready to stand, Lord. It, it, it is already becoming increasingly difficult 
uh, to profess genuine faith in Christ and to live a, a life of faithfulness to Christ. It, it's becoming more difficult all the time. We need your grace to help us stand. You are the one, as the book of Jude tells us, who is able to keep us from falling. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would keep us from falling this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Mm-hmm.